You're listening to Jay Willie's Super Sounds of the 80s, where we got the beats. You just heard Pat Benatar's Love is a Battlefield, which is about love if it were in a battlefield. Next up is Death by DVD. Then the super sounds of the 80s resume as we keep on dancing in the streets. Do you ever fantasize about listening to Hank? You are listening to Death by DVD. I am Hank. The last episode was very, very, very serious. Serious subject matter and very little room for laughter. I thought this week we would do the absolute opposite of that. Bearing that my idea of fun includes defiling graves, invoking the Dark Lord themselves, Satan, bringing the dead back to life, and through that, getting all your friends killed. That's right. We're talking about children shouldn't play with dead things. A movie that I have always enjoyed. A movie that I by no means would say is a good one. But I also will tell you, it's not a bad one. Written and directed by Benjamin Clark from 1972. Who's Benjamin Clark? It's Bob Clark! You know, the director of Baby Geniuses and Super Babies, Baby Geniuses 2, Rhinestone with Sylvester Stallone and Dolly Parton. You guys remember Rhinestone? You may know him better as the director of A Christmas Story. Yes, Fragili, A Christmas Story. Get the crowbar and the hammer, Ralphie. Ah, Fragili. It must be Italian. Well, I think that says fragile, honey. Oh, yeah. Porky's. He is the, I feel, father of American slashers with Black Christmas. We'll get into that. We'll get into some Bob Clark. We're going to talk about him. Benjamin Clark. He solely decided to be credited as Benjamin Clark because he didn't want to be associated with horror pictures. He thought he would get labeled as a horror director. Kind of funny with one of the statements that I just made. But again, we'll get into that in a little while. I mislead with saying in the intro that there is some necrophilia. You don't see any corpse fucking, but it's more like a matrimonial necrophilia. We're already getting off to a fantastic start here. We've already mentioned corpse fucking. This is great. We're going to have fun. Remember, everyone, we're having fun. We're gonna have fun. Corpse fucking. Come on. Everybody cheer. One, two, three. Yes. That's what I want to hear. Thank you. Enthusiasm. Let's start this show with the what. What is Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things? It's a 1972 film Pretty much the directorial debut of Bob Clark. He had done two films previously to this. I really don't know how much he did. There are some accusations that he just edited and pieced together one. I don't know if they were released, but they aren't our subject matter, so meh. We're just going to say factually or not, 
Children shouldn't play with dead things. Bob Clark's first picture. Often given credit, though he didn't really have, he didn't really write anything. Maybe a couple pages, maybe some dialogue. Alan Ormsby, who we will talk about also in a little while. Most of the writing was done by Bob Clark. In fact, he wrote it in 10 days, 10 pages a day until it was done. And this all shows up later. All of this is very useful later because we have to just keep in mind at the very beginning of this, I said, it's not a good movie. But I would never call it a bad movie. There's terrific reasoning as to why I'll say it's not a good movie. But a fun one. It's a fun movie. Keep that's that's the whole wording here. I said it was fun. Didn't say it was good. But I won't say it's bad either. The creation of this movie? Bob Clark came up with a title. A pretty good title. Then he and Alan Ormsby apparently went and saw Night of the Living Dead at a drive-in theater. And I question that. I question the authenticity behind that. Because when you see this movie, it truly leaves you wondering, did you watch Night of the Living Dead at all? Did you watch the movie in the, in the least bit? Because it looks like you only took one thing from that, but the one thing is very mighty and very terrific. And what's unique about that one thing, the use of it, is the use of flesh-eating ghouls. Zombies, the, the real first time zombies ate people and were cannibalistic was Ramiro's Night of the Living Dead in 1968. This film, in 1972, shot in 71, is really the first ripoff of that, and I could be wrong, I am very often, the first time there was a color, flesh-eating zombie motion picture, American nonetheless. Something that I feel is unique, the American zombie genre film truly had its birth in the eastern part of the United States. You've got Ramiro over in Pittsburgh. Well, geez, Night of the Living Dead really wasn't even in Pittsburgh. Evans City. And then with Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, it was shot on location in Dade County, Florida, where the most of Bob Clark and Alan Ormsby's early career is centered around. So these two see Night of the Living Dead, and that's what kicks Bob Clark into overdrive, and he decides to write this picture, as I said, in 10 days, 10 pages a day. Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things was born into that. Everything else kind of fell into place. Alan Ormsby was married to a stage actress, and everyone else involved were pretty much first-time actors in the sense of being on film, being in a movie. All of them were thespians. Most of them were all attending college in Miami, so they knew each other, and this was sort of a, a big thing. Whether it was a horror picture or not, everyone seemed to be heavily focused on, we're going to be in a movie. Bob Clark, on the other hand, I'm going to call myself Benjamin. I don't want to be labeled as this. So it's something kind of unique because we've brought it up a lot on Death by DVD, but you look at names like George Romero and Toby Hooper and Wes Craven, and of course there's an absolute adoration when you're a horror fan. You, you really love them. You really have a passion for them. But outside of that, it's this constant quandary of, well, why didn't they achieve mainstream success? And for the most part, it's, it's because of horror. Horror now has a resurgence and has a completely different different name behind it, but god, in the 60s and 70s, it was, you might as well have just been shooting pornography. People didn't want to be associated with it. It was something that was easy to make, and even if it did have artistic integrity, you didn't want your name attached to it. Something like Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, I think 100% has artistic integrity, and a lot of that comes down to the people involved with it. But we're still on the what. We'll get into the who in just a little bit. This movie is about a theatrical troupe led by an absolute douchebag named Alan, played by Alan Ormsby. Something I thought was hysterical while researching this movie was a commentary track that featured Alan Ormsby, and he stated, I don't know who Bob thought he was, Cassavetes. He named all the characters their real names. <laughs> it's just hysterical, and maybe an evaluation that has a lot of truth behind it when you look at Bob Clark in this movie is he was much older than everyone. So his perspective 
definitely is almost uh, comedic and satirical. We're God damn it. We're getting ahead of ourselves. So this theatrical troupe led by a douchebag. And that's maybe not even the best words. I mean, this is one of my favorite characters when it comes to an exploitation film. I don't know, God, his children shouldn't play with dead things in exploitation film? That's a question for a whole different episode. Favorite character just in general. It's It's been performed by Alan Ormsby, and we'll get to The Who. I've said that. He is so egotistical and just awful. Uh, just an evil character that does so little outside of being a Napoleon-esque short man. Dildo. Dildo. Better than douchebag. This guy's just a dildo. He's not even a real dick. He's that fake. He's just a dildo. He's marched his company out to this island, and they're gonna dig up a corpse in a satanic ritual. Wait, how do you march six people to an island? Uh, okay, they sail. In the psychotic act of defiling graves and mocking the dark arts, they actually manage to stir up some pure evil. And the corpses on this island are completely reanimated. It's a cemetery island, mind you. But there's also a house on the island? So maybe it's not a cemetery island. You know what? I'm not doing a very good job at this, am I? Can we start over? Let's start over. We'll do that. Let's start over. So this theater troupe, led by an absolute dildo named Alan, they're going on a horrible adventure, perhaps some sort of testimonial to show their commitment to the troupe. There's really no story here. So the movie begins with these people sailing to the island. The entire point, they're going to dig up a corpse and have a ritual. They're going to invoke Satan themselves. And that's where we put on the brakes. And let's jump into the who. Then it's a free-for-all after that, and I attempt to put no order to the chaos. And I apologize to no one. You downloaded it, you know what you were getting into. Bob Clark was a legendary, weird, and very, very talented man. I feel Halloween, Friday the 13th, American slashers in general wouldn't be the way they are if it wasn't for Bob Clark. I think the first true American slasher film is Black Christmas. And of course we can recite the rumor that John Carpenter and Deborah Hill had seen it and just wanted to make a film based on a holiday that there was something scary in the fact of that. But regardless, the point and how Black Christmas is presented, how it was shot, the art direction... It made a statement that I think was replicated even to the extent that a lot of John Carpenter's Halloween comes from Bob Clark. But he also was a terribly satirical and edgy comedy guy. He helped define and is responsible for a great deal of the American slasher movies. You gotta think of it a way like Iggy Pop and the Ramones with American Punk. You've got Bob Clark there at the Velvet Underground, Blue Cheer, you know, the, the early idea of things. That's Bob Clark, that's those guys. But he, on the other hand, too, is one of the defining points of the teen sex comedy in the United States that, although much of his productions took place in Canada, he was one of the first to do something just, in this era, almost intolerable and unacceptable. Porky's from 1981. He also did Porky's 2 the next day. Had nothing to do with Porky's 3, Porky's Revenge. But he had his finger on the pulse. And I mentioned earlier that he was a little bit older than everyone else involved in this, and Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things sort of focuses. It's burning out at this point because it's the early 70s, but it's a hippie movie. There is a lot of talk and a lot of representation that people like to reference the Alan character as a bit of a Charles Manson type, which I don't really agree with. They could have gone a lot farther with it, and it's not something like, I drink your blood. It's a very cult very Manson feeling, very uh, B Manson, B grade Manson feeling vibe. This has its own 
it's got its feeling i think is really centered around the work everyone was involved with prior to this and the attitudes that everyone had toward being a thespian and stage acting which is really representative in the performances bob clark was a playwright at the university of miami when he met alan ormsby and they had worked together and started a friendship alan left to go to another school and when he eventually returned to miami bob was into making movies and this is you know he as i said he had made two things before children shouldn't play with dead things and i don't want to cut them out and say they don't count i think one was called she man a story of fixation and the emperor's new clothes which was a short film i don't know the running time on it but it's dubious as to how much Bob had involvement with it outside of uh, editing them together. Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things was writing and directing his foremost first experience with, for a horror picture, a very largely cast film, a budget of $50,000, which a lot of independent directors right now would start salivating over. $50,000, I could do so much with it. But in the early 70s, shooting on 35mm, many people think it's 16, but it's 35. Movie was shot on 35mm. 50000 was... Not that much. Studio pictures would get a lot more shelled out than something like this. Now we move into Alan Ormsby. Alan Ormsby was married at the time, so we already had an actress. You've got a title, they saw Night of the Living Dead, and they have an actress and an actor. Bob Clark sat down, pounded out this script. The cast fell into place easily after that. And as I said, this is a zombie movie. At some point, zombies appear, and it's quite ravaging. I think you would have... I think, honestly, there's a lot more than in Night of the Living Dead. Alan Ormsby did most of the molds and effects and the practical magic behind this movie, creating this very unique, almost, it's kind of like an Italian clay face zombie, but at the same time, far earlier than that, almost this flaky skin, like cornflake texture that just falls off and it almost makes your fingers just tingle because it's like, oh, ew, I don't want to touch that. That's so gross. Alan Ormsby, I think, is the magic when it comes to children shouldn't play with dead things. The unique style and touch that Bob Clark brings to the camera and his whole script and idea, though it's very lacking. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll talk about the lack of the script or lack of direction in a little while. Alan Ormsby is the pivotal force and his performance, uh, man, it's dinner theater, but it's the best dinner theater you've ever gone to. You had a great steak, the wine was fantastic, and Alan Ormsby was there. His fake laugh, it, it's just the <laughs> most maniacally bad thing in the world. It's like one of those really bad Bali James Bond knockoff. Just, oh, the worst laugh in the world. <laughs> But I love Alan, and I love Alan Ormsby. Alan Ormsby mostly throughout his career has written. He worked on the screenplay for Cat People, the 1982 Cat People, of course. Porky's 2, The Next Day. One of my favorites. I don't know if he worked with Roy Frumkeys on this, but he is one of the writers on The Substitute, the very first substitute with Tom Berenger. Writer of Street Trash, Roy Frumkeys, is responsible for the main idea on that movie, so... Those two minds working together. He worked on Popcorn. He wrote Popcorn. He worked on it. He wrote Popcorn and was originally going to direct the film until he was fired. There's a whole different story and legacy on that. He also co-directed in 1974 with Jeff Gillen, who plays the aptly named Jeff in Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, a movie called Deranged, Confessions of a Necrophile. I'm a very big fan of the Ed Gein film that Steve Railsback did, but... 
it just doesn't touch deranged. I think the definitive Ed Gein movie certainly is deranged. And if you've never seen that movie, it's got Robert Blossoms playing Ed Gein. Robert Blossoms you might know infamously as the old man from the first Home Alone movie that Kevin is so terribly frightened of that turns out to save the day. Jeff Gillen's career unfortunately ends in the mid-1990s as he passed away, but we are still honored with Alan Ormsby on this earth. Alan Ormsby hasn't been credited as a writer since 2002 on any project. What's going on? That's a shame. Let's give Alan Ormsby some money and let him get back to work. Somebody I really, really enjoy, and a lot of it comes from children shouldn't play with dead things. Now, we're still trying to focus a little bit on The Who, so let's look at some of the other players. We've got Jeff Gillen, who I mentioned, playing Jeff. Valerie Mamchez playing Val. Something unique that we'll get into in just a little bit is some of the relationships behind this, but most people behind the scenes knew each other and they had some familiarity with each other. Meaning, not only is Alan Ormsby's wife, Anya, part of the cast, but his ex-girlfriend, Valerie, too. And that's a very unique Thing. There are some amazing moments between these two. We'll dive into that. We'll get there soon. Remember, man, it's going to become a free-for-all after we get a little bit of this, this small amount of scheduling and ideas out of the way. Then I'm just going to ramble. Jane Daly playing Terry. Jane and Anya have both had a pretty lengthy career after this, working mainly in television. Roy Engelman as Roy, Paul Cronin as Paul, and Seth Sclerly as Orville, the corpse. Orville the dead body. Somebody who seems like he's uh, a little bit of a dick. The only person that has a terribly negative review of this movie. You can Google it and find it for yourself. Seth did an interview years ago and had nothing good to say about Alan Ormsby, a sentiment that no one else involved, including his ex-girlfriend and his ex-wife, don't seem to share. Didn't seem happy with his payment in general. Seems a little bit of a sore loser. I don't know. Uh, one of the most infamous roles in the film on most of the covers of this movie. You've got two really cool posters with this. You've got one that's got the corpse of Orville, and then you've got this really neat children shouldn't play with dead things listed in white, and it's a cartoon of everyone sitting in a coffin with a corpse. Playful. And I think that's a heavy nature when it comes to this movie, is it starts so catty. You've got all of these characters, and you're introduced to them as thespians, and you understand that Alan is their director, and he's the head of their troupe. And immediately, no one is pleasant. No one's happy with one another. You can tell that there's maybe some affection toward other characters, some boyfriend-girlfriend scenarios. But for the most part, when it comes to the treatment of Alan toward the troop and the troop toward Alan, everyone is incredibly cold. Alan Ormsby's wife in real life, Anya, plays the character. Can you guess her name? Anya. And she's like squiggy from, I mean, like like burnt out. Just in, I don't know if that's the direction of the character. Ooh, now we can really get into the fun stuff here and I can just start rambling on things I said I wasn't going to ramble about earlier. Bob Clark. Bob Clark apparently lied about his age his entire life and nobody really knew what the age gap was, but there was a sufficient enough age gap when it came to this movie that his idea of these thespians, these hippies, it's almost more beatnik than anything else, showing a little bit of his age, but his take from what he saw on the news and television and, and just seeing culture and counterculture around him, he was able to manipulate and pound out 10 pages in 10 days and come up with this entire concept, and all of the characters are just beach characters. That's not how you say that word. Caricatures? Caricature? Caricature. I wonder how long this will go on. Caricature. 
You know, like those big cartoons when somebody's holding a skateboard or they're riding a dune buggy that they do on the boardwalk. I can't say the goddamn word. Caricature? Caricature. Caricature. Moving on. They're all these, like, cartoons of what the idea of counterculture and hippies were, but there is a lot of beatnik influence, and some of that really comes down to the costuming. This movie has this just the most ridiculous fucking costuming. Everyone is out of place. Anya is wearing a potato sack with racing stripes down it. Alan has on the most decadent and wonderful pants. In fact, I own a pair of pants very, very, very similar to this. Years ago, before he unfortunately passed away, I went to go see Killjoy play with his band Necrophagia in Orlando, Florida, and I had on these black and white bell bottoms first words out of the guy's mouth when i got there ah alan pants children shouldn't play with dead things although completely not the right color the gesture and the vibe is still there i said earlier alan ormsby is one of the things that defines and is pivotal about this movie i also said that he plays a gigantic dildo not even good enough to be a real throbbing cock made out of flesh but a dildo it's fucking wonderful. It's just this, I, I don't know if he's channeling Vincent Price. One thing I can say about children shouldn't play with dead things is it's like a very, very cheap Hammer movie. Note that I don't say Amicus. Cheaper than that. What's that company that does the Sci-Fi Channel movies? The Asylum? That level. $50,000, but still, it's like below Hammer. You can tell that it's attempting at a Hammer. It's just not there. It's darkly lit. It's moody. You know, it's more like Dark Shadows. There we go. It's like Hammer does Dark Shadows. Ormsby's delivery of dialogue is just divine, and it's so much dialogue. The first half of this movie is entirely dialogue, in fact. The first half of the movie is actually tedious because of the amount of dialogue and the amount of dialogue that's delivered from Alan Ormsby, who is so incredibly sarcastic, negative, and abusive to his cohorts, and that just grinds on your nerves. But dialogue shots are really, really easy to shoot, and cheap to shoot. But it does conveniently set up the second half of this film. You go from this dreadful dialogue, this nonstop dialogue, and there's constant arguing. The character Val, played by Alan Ormsby's ex-girlfriend, who apparently wasn't very happy with him at the time of filming this. They hadn't really, I guess, worked out their breakup. So a lot of the on-screen back and forth between these two, and oh boy, there's a lot of it. It's intense. Val really has no respect for Alan, and she's what causes the entire problem here. Now, Alan has desecrated a lot. He's, he's crossed some lines. He's lured all these people out onto the island, and essentially it's really a prank. You don't have a lot of thought when it's put to the writing and the story behind this, nor do you have a lot of direction. Everyone is very, very theatrical. One thing that's interesting is the general performances. Everyone mainly being stage actors and this being their first performances, they're just overcharged. It's a little insane. Anya looks like she's on meth the entire movie. She's just She's just this weird, freaky little death girl, eyes wide, petrified the entire time. And those that even don't have dialogue, you watch these other characters and you focus on them in the background, it's all stage acting and it's over the top. The performances are almost trying to rationalize the events of all these things that are happening in the movie, which is ludicrous because it's a horror film where the dead come back to life. So there is no rationalizing, there is no... There is nothing set in our reality, but the performances just taking that. Most of these people were like Shakespearean actors. Most of these people were working on really hip happening plays coming from the late 60s and early 70s that were delving into a lot of counterculture subtext. And 
very, very invocative and hard to perform things. So when they came into this situation, everyone's looking for reality. They're looking for, well, why is my character doing this? Why are we going to this island? None of that's in the script. None of it's visible to the extent that Anya would sit on, on set and come up with these detailed character backgrounds just to help her get through her performance, which for the most part, even Jane Daly, nobody has dialogue except Alan Ormsby, and it's so lengthy. Jeff Gillen repeatedly states that he pees his pants. I peed my pants. I peed my pants. <laughs> and everyone kind of calls him an asshole. And then once the zombies come, it's just screaming and yelling and hammer this up. And I say zombies specifically. I, this is a zombie movie, man. It's always left out of those best zombie movies of all time lists. And I don't think people really include it. But we were talking about this at the beginning of the show. You've got Romero's picture in the United States in 1968. There's really not a lot until children shouldn't play with dead things, which heavily, I mean, you can tell by the imagery and what the representation of the zombies coming at you that it's the lurching crawling uh, it's not john russo brains well we can't even really put that on john russo it's not o'bannon zombies yelling brains and asking for more paramedics it's that slow creepy ramiro crawl Honestly, the most attention to direction that Bob Clark gave his cast in the situation of children shouldn't play with dead things probably comes down to the zombies and the ghouls. It's chaos, just like this episode. Okay, so let's take a few steps back and get into the whole plot and what's going on with children shouldn't play with dead things. So this theatrical troupe gets out onto the island. Dialogue out the ass. Again, Alan Ormsby's proclamation of who does Bob Clark think he is, somebody like Cassavetes, naming all the characters their own names, kind of shines true, because man, you're really trying to carry this entire movie off the banter of an asshole, an intolerable asshole. Alan has set up an elaborate prank while this ritual's going on. Two friends of his are going to jump out of the woods while dressed as zombies and frighten everyone. A great show, a grand performance. Things don't turn out that way as Val is just a little disappointed with what Alan has set up for everyone and decides that she's got to punish him. She's really got to hit him where it hurts and take it down to his ego. She jumps into this freshly dug grave and puts on a grand performance, not only mocking Alan, but truly offending any entity that was possibly listening. Of course, they're hanging out in a graveyard in an abandoned island. What do you think is going to happen next? The dead return to life. Angry. Because they've dug up one of their own. They found a corpse named Orville, and that is the center of Alan's absolute cruelty. That's a defining word for this movie, cruelty. The movie is cruel, the humor is cruel, something that I think is very reminiscent later on in Bob Clark's career, even with Black Christmas. The deaths are cruel, the treatment of the characters are cruel, the humor in Porky's isn't really fun. It's very, very blue, it's very, very lewd. Rhinestone, on the other hand, that's great for everybody. Everybody should sit down and watch Rhinestone. Breaking Point's not that cruel. But at this era and what the whole direction, I mean, and this is me, I'm telling you. You're listening to my fucking show, so I'm telling you. I feel it's, it's cruelty. There isn't some in-depth arc of Alan's learning a lesson and all these bad things are going to happen because they were dicks. It's, it's really a free-for-all at this point. There was an idea. Zombies. Let's do something with zombies. Let's figure that out. And of course, as I said earlier, everyone involved were thespians and stage actors, so combine these two universes, hey, we got a movie. I mean, it's about shock? Maybe? 
you could come up with these ideas and you could fill in blanks and come up with whatever you wanted to subjectually, but when it comes to Bob Clark's writing, none of these things were really present or a part of the script. These people go out into an island, they dig up a body, they offend the spirits, the spirits come back, now it's total chaos, now it's absolute mayhem, and everyone's got to survive for themselves. I like the lead-up, though. I love the dialogue-heavy parts, and I absolutely love when they finally dig up Orville and they do this whole satanic thing. Valerie Mamchez's performance is just over the top. It's like fitting for a John Waters movie over the top. One of my favorite words, decadent. She invokes the spirits with her mocking of Alan, and maybe that's where they took offense to things. You know, they, the, the old souls of the island thought she was mocking them. And your vilification of Satan is rice pudding, soggy oatmeal, stale goods, Alan, like all your creative efforts. You're a clerk, Alan. A bookkeeper, you'd better accept that. And you know why? Because it takes an artist to deal with the devil, not an insurance man with delusions of grandeur. Get out of the grave. Get out of the grave, Alan. Let an artist show you how to call a curse down on Satan. Hail, satanic majesty! Hail, mighty master of evil! Tormentor of lost souls! Paragon of perfidy! Antichrist! Vilest of the vile! Respected foe of Jehovah and the Archangel! Usurper! Seducer! Panderer supreme! So what's with this little thing we're asking, huh? A few rotting corpses to serve our meager needs. So what's the trouble, hmm? You got the blood you were asking, right? You got Orville, right? You got the warlock and his war chest, right? Is that a bargain, I ask you? A visit, first class? So where's the goods? <laughs> Satan, you tweaker of puppy dog tails, you billy's bag of bombast, you poultry purveyor of potence, you half-witted halagon of horse manure, <laughs> mighty master of evil. Your most terrifying trick is growing warts on old ladies' noses, scaring scarecrows, snitching buttons, ingrown toenails, corns, and chicken pox. That's your speed. And it just turns into a frenzy. Clayface zombies left and right, all of these effects done by Ormsby himself, with art designed by a guy that everyone couldn't help but say was just absolutely beautiful and wonderful, Forrest Carpenter. And after 40 minutes of talking and moodiness, we finally explode. There's finally something. The attempt to build suspense after the oddly dialogue-driven ride you had been on for the first half of the movie pays off. Once things really hit the fan, it's like, whoa! 
you don't feel a gratification of seeing bad things happen because, of course, bad things don't seem to happen to Alan. It's everybody else. But there's no real sympathy. There's no real uh, uh, affection toward any of these characters. It's like, oh, man, Yellow Shirt's dying. Ah, Yellow Shirt, I hardly knew ye. That's not so much the point here. It's just that over-the-top... It's one of the reasons I think people like Twin Peaks so much, because of that weird suspended reality, like Gordon Cole, David Lynch's whole just yelling. Today I was thinking about new things, new times, and then I started thinking about James Brown, and Papa's got a brand new bag. You know, he he puts this personification of what people imagine humans to be, and he puts it on screen. When it comes to something like children shouldn't play with dead things, I don't think it's quite Lynchian. A term you should know I have disdain for. But it's just that stage to screen, there's a weird little level in between that that sometimes occasionally can be caught. And like I said, it's like the best dinner theater you've ever been to. It's just sweet. There's something sweet and fun and funny about all of it when it mixes together, even though this is a terror picture. This is coming from the coattails of something like Night of the Living Dead, and you are supposed to be, at this last half, petrified. But I think it pays off, and I think this whole zombie ravaging, and once they finally come out of the dead, they're boarded up in this ridiculous house. A house that was owned by a cat named Tony Gulliver, a very eclectic kind of Hugh Hefner of the Miami area photographer in the 1970s. And apparently they actually had to clean up the house somewhat to get some shots. Very strange guy. They're trapped inside of this house, and it of course goes into the direction that you think it would go to. They nail up the doors, they all start freaking out, you've got the whole pressure cooker aspect, Everyone's freaking on each other, except Anya, who is just going into this weird insanity. She's obsessed with the dead. She's very upset over the disrespect and all the awful things that Alan has done and is very upset with Val and thinks that they're mocking the spirits. Probably the only person that has a, a clue of sense. But at the same time, the performance is so wacky. It's so over the top. The whole movie, I have no idea how she did it. Her eyes are just wide open. As, as Anya says herself, the biggest mouth you ever have seen. It's massive. It's just this manic, insane performance on top of manic, insane performance. Even some of the characters that don't have dialogue. If you watch Jane Daly through the entire movie, she's incredibly expressive. She gets degraded and treated brutally, just screamed at by Alan. The expressive nature of all these stage actors and all of these people combining on screen, it just made it really so soap opera, but it's not that bad. It's not like a Days of Our Lives episode from the 1980s where you're just hoping that, that the power will go out or you'll die before it ends. There's some weird connectivity to it, but it's one of those grindhouse moments. It's one of those beautiful drive-in moments where it works so poorly on so many levels that somehow all of the shit managed to stack up and to be amazing. Which, looking at both Alan Ormsby and Bob Clark's career, you can see, I feel, both of these guys are geniuses, and this being their first foray into things, all of the levels and all of them combining and touching hands and coming up with this product, that's what made it work. Alan, such a bastard of a character. But still, it's a terribly constructed script. I mean, why are they following this guy around? Why is anyone even listening to him? How how good could this troop be? You follow this raving dildo who just seems to love 
deflating everyone else's ego. He just loves pissing on everyone's parade. Why are they following him? I mean, nothing is even set up like they're going to do a really, really big production, and if they don't pass this test that Alan has set up, they don't get it. No, it just seems like a bunch of people following this psychopath, which unfortunately, I guess I just answered my own question, because there are so many people right now still stammering around in the streets crying, I can't believe he didn't win. I can't believe Donald Trump didn't win. People that blindly follow a psychopath. There are all sorts of cults all over the world. Let's look at Heaven's Gate. Just as insane. Get on your black and white Nikes and drink the Kool-Aid, man. Everything is safe. I guess maybe that's a, a projection you could have on this movie. People follow psychopaths. People completely fall into the ideology of psychopaths, especially if they have a sense of power. I am reaching. Oh my god, my arm hurts. I am reaching so far to find some semblance of some backstory, a plot to this movie. Bunch of people go to an island, bring the dead back, Dead kills them. That's the movie. We'll be brutally honest here. But god damn it, if it isn't fun! It's a fun movie, though! It's fun to watch! It's it's fun to even partake in the brutality of just Alan Ormsby. He's so good at what he does, and I think he shines in this. It's over the top. And most of the performances are, I keep mentioning Jane Daly, she shines. I think it's a really fun performance. I love Anya, and I'm very fond of Jeff Gillen. I peed my pants. I peed my pants. It's just so weird. The cruel black humor. Just the cruel nature in general. It's mean. Though almost no one's really directed. No character has any point. There's no arc for any of them. It turns into this just wonderful black ensemble piece. Just a very deep black comedy. It's so mean that's almost why it's great. It's very rare you get just an incredibly mean-spirited picture and everyone has animosity against everyone. No one seems to be pleasant, no one's complacent, and everyone hates Alan, and that's our leads, that's our characters. And it's also the only zombie movie where the zombies wear dockers. Now, did children shouldn't play with dead things help anyone's career? <laughs> It didn't. It didn't at all. In fact, almost everyone involved had to go to Hollywood and restart their careers. They had to completely... No, I had nothing to do with that. That's probably why Bob Clark didn't use his real name. Immediately after Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, Bob, Jane, and Alan went off to film Death Dream. Some people call it Dead of Night. I love the title, Death Dream. 1974, written by Ormsby, directed by Bob Clark. It's a movie about a soldier who was killed in Vietnam who somehow manages to come home. They had a $200,000 budget this time, and it definitely shows up on screen. John Marley stars as the patriarch of the family. Jane Daly as the little sister. Anya Ormsby also shows up. It's a much more emotional picture, and it allows you almost immediately to see the talent that came from the combination, one, of Ormsby and Bob Clark, but the guys individually, everyone, not just the guys, I use that term loosely, everyone individually, the combination of talent with talent, something that I think is a trademark of Bob Clark's career. Once he got used to people, once he got comfortable with people, he knew how to work with them and continued working with them throughout his career. And yes, Super Babies, Baby Geniuses 2 isn't the finest example of great American motion pictures. But really, 
Things like Porky's and Black Christmas are trademark of not just American comedies. Even though the humor featured in something like Porky's isn't acceptable whatsoever now, you have to look at the success and the turning point and what it was responsible for because thousands, literally thousands of other movies trying to replicate the formula of Porky's, even to the extent of many of them being period pieces in the 1980s. Black Christmas... It just shining again light on that John Carpenter story. If he hadn't seen a showing of that movie, I highly doubt the success or the nature of Halloween would have been the way it was. It comes from Bob Clark. And a Christmas story, holy shit, in the United States it plays, what, the day before Christmas all the way into the 26, 24 hours on one station. It's a staple at this point. You've got White Christmas and It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Story, Bob Clark. He's a household name. Death Dream, I think, is absolutely terrifying. It was remade, I guess. Maybe it's a faux pas of saying that. There's a film called Cella Tersica, which manages to mirror, for the most part, Death Dream. Of course, a lot of the roles have been reversed and a little bit has been changed. It's an Iraq War sort of thing. The director claims very, very deeply that he had never been aware or had seen Death Dream beforehand, and I'll give a little credence to that. It was never released, which is a crying shame, because when it comes to the work and the horror combining Alan Ormsby and Bob Clark, this is one of the finest. I'd mentioned very, very earlier that Deranged Confessions of a Necrophile was absolutely excellent, but that's more of an Alan Ormsby joint. I don't think this movie is the first of its type, but I think it's genre-defining. I think looking at Ramiro's Night of the Living Dead and then you jump into children shouldn't play with dead things, you can easily see how it's almost a landslide of genres once the 80s began. So many things were influenced so many things were represented by and this is a movie that really came from two people seeing Ramiro's picture and I made the joke at the beginning how much of that even showed up they got the zombies right but it's for the most part very dialogue driven a lot of witticism a lot of cruelty a lot of black humor the end of the movie though oh mamma mia the end of the movie is amazing. It's cold-blooded. It's cruel. It's as cruel as they come, man. So the zombies are invading. I don't have to paint the picture incredibly clear for you because I hope that you'll check out Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. If you've seen it before, watch it again. Have some fun. Smoke a little dope because everyone involved in this except Bob Clark was probably stoned to the bone while they were making it. You've seen it before. You'll see it again. A zombie rampage is going on, and you're down to the very brittle bottom lines of the character. Alan is left with the almost catatonic, crazy, obsessed with dead Anya. And they're on this staircase, and the zombies are lurching and moving forward. They are legion, for they are many. And he decides to throw her at the zombies, just kind of lets her go. This character, Anya, has been in total shock almost the entire time. Just, you know, I've mentioned these wide eyes. You gotta see it to believe it. Just psychotic performance. The zombies even look up at Alan like, Whoa! This guy! Get a load of this dick! She falls back and he runs up the stairs and finally has a confrontation with the corpse that started it all. The thing they defiled first. They dug up poor old Orville. And I've completely neglected to bring up the whole matrimonial scene. Before the zombie chaos begins, Alan and everyone take it even an inch further. They've dug up this body and they drag it back to the old dilapidated house where Alan decides to marry it. This is where the necrophilia aspect comes in. The real fun of it all. The juicy, juicy, maggot-filled, corpse-fucking fun of it all. They put on the charade of a wedding where Alan gets married to Orville and they finally take him upstairs. And two, there could be this whole subtext 
You've got the Anya character who from the bat seems to have a very strange obsession with death. But Alan, too, he brings them out to this island to dig up this corpse, and it turns into this weird, semi-sensual, pseudo-sensual, I guess you could say, moment where he's talking to it, and he lays next to it. But I don't think a lot of emotion was put forward with Bob Clark. I think it comes down to the people that were involved in what happened on set. Bob would say, I want you to do this, and they'd go do it, and whatever came out is kind of what was caught. I think the moral of the whole thing is... They came out and they defiled these corpses. They made a laughing stock of Orville's life. They made a laughing stock of the entity. They made a laughing stock of the sanctimony of death, the ritual of your tombstone and your coffin and your grave not being touched. I mean, that's where the whole King Tut thing comes from. There was a curse put on his grave and everyone that came into it was cursed with something. You've got that primordial fear of the mummy's tomb with something like children shouldn't play with dead things but in the whole by the end of the movie it's almost a laughing stock but not in the bad sense not in the razzy sense not in it's such a bad movie obviously this is a first picture for everyone but it's a powerful first picture and that's where it really holds a point for me and i think where it gets really really enjoyable you can look at the rest of Bob Clark's career, you can look at the rest of Alan Armsby's career, but it's starting with children shouldn't play with dead things is such a, a statement. It's never going to be forgotten. It's around forever. And of course, I said it's not necessarily a good movie, but it's not a bad movie. That's where legends are born. That's where some of the greatest things you can sit down and watch come from. They're not that good. You ever seen Last House on Dead End Street? It's not really a good movie, but legendary. It's going to be known forever. Horror fans will get on their hands and knees just to see a good 4K copy of it. People would pay hundreds of dollars just to see a good 4K copy of it. Shit, people pay thousands of dollars just to find VHS and beta copies of it. The movie finally ends with all the zombies getting on a boat and going to Miami. I shit you not, no, that's the end of the movie. The zombies get on a boat and they're going to sail off to Miami, presumably... Didn't last week's episode end with something about boats? Oh well. Bob Clark unfortunately died in 2007 with his 21-year-old son Ariel after a drunk driver hit them head-on. He died way too soon. His light was extinguished way before his time. Especially in this era now. Somebody like Bob Clark, their witticism, their bleak, I wouldn't say nihilistic, but we'll stick with that. Nihilistic look and 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 natural look it wasn't like it was imposed it was something that he naturally brought even something like porky's the negativity is overwhelming and it's hysterical though i mean it's almost not like national lampoon's movies have a very certain level of bleak and dark humor but bob clark god he was just a dark dark guy it's like hr geiger's work just very very dismal and you got to break it down to that level but really i mean children shouldn't play with dead things there's no lesson to be learned. Don't be an asshole, I guess. It's just uh, violence almost for the sake of violence, though it's specifically not gory. It was originally a PG-13 movie, and in 1972, that took a little bit. It's, I mean, God, now you can say bitch too many times and you get a PG-13 rating. But there's not a lot of extreme gore. There's not a lot of extravagance. Like I said, you've got this kind of Italian clay face looking zombie look to it. But the movie is attempting to drive on fear and terror, and it just really never hits those notes. I think it's hysterical in the sense of, damn, this is brutal. This is just brutal portrayal of, of assholes, and everyone is kind of a dick. Everyone is 
And no one is really defined well enough that you could say that outside of Alan. He's an asshole, and everyone is reacting to him, but you don't get anything except Anya, who's just totally freaked out the entire time, and it's just fun. It's fun. We're returning to the very beginning of the show. It's fun. I think that's a cop-out. I think that's a horrible way to review a movie, and it, it means nothing, essentially. It was fun. That's my opinion. I think it was fun. But no, man. Children shouldn't play with dead things. There's no better way to describe it from beginning to end. If you can just sit down and dig this ride, it's pretty fun. You look at something like The Walking Dead and see where the zombie genre has gotten to now. This is really one of the first forays into it. You've got Ramiro and then children shouldn't play with dead things. Of course, you can be a classical fan and you can look back to things like White Zombie. Yes. The term and the idea existed far longer before Ramiro came into the picture, but flesh-eating ghouls, die of the living dead, children shouldn't play with dead things. That's really the American basis into it. But two, you look at things like The Walking Dead, isn't it easy to see how it got to that point? Some people are massive fans, other people think it's just filler that should have ended years ago. You could describe children shouldn't play with dead things the exact same way. The appreciation is the talent, the actors, the players, and Bob Clark himself. This is the beginning of a triumphant and wonderful career. I love Bob Clark and I love Alan Ormsby. I loved them both deeply together. Apparently, some many years before Bob died, they had a falling out and both careers went into a completely separate direction. But it's nice to sit back and enjoy what they were able to do together when they were able to make art together. And and certainly, I will leave you saying children shouldn't play with dead things is art. Alan Ormsby is a terrific, wonderful artist. Please look into his career. The same goes for Bob Clark. I don't know the credence to this rumor, but apparently Quentin Tarantino had some interest in doing a remake of Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things with Bob Clark, and he wanted to play the Alan Ormsby character. Sounds like an abomination to God, and I'm happy it never came to any form of fruition. Unfortunately, it was more than likely cut short by Bob Clark's dismal demise. But could you just imagine Quentin Tarantino being Alan? I'll avoid doing an impersonation like I did last week. And it looks like... The ashtray is full... And the bottle is empty. Have a pleasant tomorrow. We'll see you next week. Open your minds. Remove all doubt, but be on your guard. Let nothing take hold of you. Let nothing enter your body. From this time on, you must be silent. Oh, great diviner, master of the three worlds, Disciple who became master, Lord of the Netherworld, Lord of Night, Prince of Darkness, Despoiler of Light, Diviner of Powers, Redeemer of Passion, Crucible of Flesh, by the blood incarnate, by the flesh made proud, by the soul devoured of itself, by these words we do implore. By these deeds we do supplicate and call upon the grace of thee, Lord Almighty of the Underworld, to release the souls of all thy servants who lie here unredeemed, to release them to serve thy servant, bending their wills always to his, thus to thine own. By the blood of babes unborn, by the inversion of the Savior, by the bond of thine own hand, 
We do entreat thee, deliver them up to us, to command in thy name, to serve our will and thine own. By Lucifer, Beelzebub, Mephistopheles, Arcanes, and all the underlords, we do entreat, let them rise. Let them rise up. Spiritus, Aquitani, Salvete, let them rise. Let them rise up. Satan, God of all. They must be out to lunch. <laughs> I'm Linnea. And I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. On the next episode of Death by DVD. Widower Sheriff I. Alexander Nash and his daughter live with Nash's Aunt B in any town USA. With virtually no crime to solve, most of Nash's time is spent philosophizing and calming down his best friend and deputy, Hank, the world's greatest. An out-of-town speeder thinks Alexander Nash runs a speed trap in any town USA. Awaiting her day in court gives her plenty of time to work on swaying the witnesses. Hank. The world's greatest. Find out what happens on the next episode of Death by DVD. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. You have been listening to Death by DVD. Death by DVD, please Death by DVD is recorded in front of the dead studio audience broadcast